On April 16th, 2018, 29 Humboldt Broncos players, coaches, and staff loaded into the team bus for a routine two-hour drive through the plains and farmland of Saskatchewan, Canada for an away game. Down 3-1 to the Nipawin Hawks in the SJHL Championship, the team was on the brink of elimination. It's no secret that hockey is big in Canada, but junior hockey, this level, in small towns like Humboldt, is a religion. And this season's Broncos, many with NHL aspirations and the skills to get them there, were a team the people of Humboldt could believe in. Their eight-month, 60-game season had been grueling, but heading into the playoffs, they had gelled under the leadership of coach Darcy Hogan. Many of them felt less like teammates, more like brothers, who happened to play hockey together. And they relished the chance to go into this game alongside their brothers with everything on the line. That was what they lived for. But they never had the chance. Canadian officials say the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team from Saskatchewan was on the way to a game Friday when their bus was broadsided by a semi, killing at least 15. Authorities say the team, with players ranging in age from 16 to 21, was scheduled to play in Nipawin and was near the town of Tisdale when the accident happened. The bus slammed onto its side. Shocking news to a small town of 5,800. I want to be able to carry those guys with me, and they're kind of like my motivation, so I'll go obviously as far as I can. Getting back on the ice for me and coaching has been therapy. I want them to know that I am okay, and I want to be playing hockey next year. I'm Gotham Chopra from Religion of Sports. This is Why Sports Matter. In this episode, we speak to survivors and those directly impacted by the Humboldt Broncos tragedy and try to understand sports' true power and limitations in helping people heal. Chris Joseph often made the seven-hour drive from his home in Edmonton to watch Humboldt play. He played 18 seasons in the NHL, and his oldest son Jackson was a 20-year-old forward for the Broncos, and Jackson was having the season of his life. This was his best hockey season he'd ever had and he was always a goal scorer but he put up his best numbers but he definitely wanted to go play university and he had some offers and he was planning to play somewhere next year on the night of the crash chris planned to watch the broncos game from home with his wife we actually had dinner made i got a call from a friend here in st albert that his boy played in the sjhl as well and he told me that there had been an accident. That's all he knew. And so right away we started calling Jackson, started calling the other families, and tried to find out what we could. And information was extremely limited. And after, I think we sat home for about an hour, and we, uh, we said, well, forget this. We're just driving because we know whatever it is, we need to be there. It was a seven-hour drive. We had heard that a lot of the boys were being flown into Saskatoon, the hospital there. So that was our first stop. And that's where everybody ended up going. And that was kind of our our first stop and our last stop. At the hospital, 
doctors took them to see Jackson. Only the boy they were taken to see wasn't their son. It was a traumatic scene as far as triage goes when you're trying to quickly identify everybody. I don't think there would be a worse scenario than this because they all looked alike. They all built alike. They all had blonde hair. They all had lots of injuries. Um, So identification would have been a challenge, to say the least. They started asking around and making more calls, trying to figure out where Jackson was. Where's Jackson? Finally, after a little while, it became apparent that uh, Jackson was one of the ones that did not get flown out. And it took us a while to realize that because we had to kind of put all the pieces together. But yeah, we were one of the last ones to find out where he was. It turns out that when I realized that for sure Jackson wasn't wearing those clothes, that meant that Jackson wasn't at the hospital. That was my moment. And we knew that if you were unaccounted for, that means you were left behind on the scene because you were you know, dead on scene. Chris has been coaching for years since he retired from the NHL. But after the accident, he didn't know if he'd be able to anymore. I think one of the things I worried about was, am I going to get on the ice and it's just going to be too hard? Am I going to break down in a pool of tears and not be able to coach? As the death toll rose, the news of the crash sent emotional shockwaves throughout Canada and around the world. People donated some $20 million for the team through GoFundMe. Media flocked to the area. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself visited Humboldt. The Broncos' new season began five months later in September, and the first game was broadcast live on TSN, Canada's version of ESPN. Justin Trudeau delivered a message before the game. That day, the people of Humboldt suffered unimaginable shock, grief, and trauma. They lost friends, loved ones, teammates, coaches, and mentors. Canadians everywhere were heartbroken, and we mourned alongside the community. But in the wake of this tragedy, Humboldt has shown incredible resilience and strength. Canadians were quick to share their love, support, generosity, and kindness in a moment where it was so desperately needed. So to the people of Humboldt, know that we are with you. Know that we will continue to support you as you heal. And I'm glad to say that the Broncos will be back on the ice tonight for the first time. And I want to wish them the very best. You have all of us and 37 million fans cheering you on. And in the United States, ESPN covered the event. And that's what it is. It's the joy of competition. Put on the sweater to get on the ice to play. The joy that comes with that. That's the story we thought we would tell you when our producer, Adam, went to Humboldt. A team. A tragedy. A community and country coming together for them. And with the start of the new season, healing. When I started making calls, they were like, listen, that's a nice story. Mm -hmm. But like, that's not really what it feels like here. There's been a lot of drama surrounding Humboldt. A lot of disagreement over what to do with the money raised, over the hiring of the new coach, over allowing TSN to broadcast their first game live. But even beyond that, many in Humboldt simply have not healed. They may never fully heal. And their stories don't fit neatly into the narrative that we had originally pursued. 
Consider what Sean Brando, the Broncos team chaplain, told a TV reporter about a month after the crash. Grief is messy at the best, and it doesn't follow a formula. It doesn't fit in a box in any of those ways. So it's a tough question to answer. Many people are at different stages. You know, some are putting on a very brave face with a very broken heart, and, and other people are, are very angry. And so it's grief has been tough to measure where people are at, and people are, some are coping, some are, are still really, really struggling, really fighting. They were survivors of the crash, but some of them still can't play hockey again. Not yet. Their stories, their broken bodies, are a more accurate symbol of what things really feel like around there. Take Caleb Dahlgren, Humboldt's 20-year-old right-winger and assistant captain. All his life, Caleb wanted to play big-time hockey. After he finished this season with Humboldt, he planned to go play for York University in Toronto. I woke up and I kind of like realized I was in the hospital. I was looking around and I was like, why am I in the neck breaks? Like, what's going on? Kind of like fell up my head and I had a bandage on my head. My parents were right there. I'm like, am I dreaming? And they're like, no. And I kind of started laughing. I was like, yeah, I am. So then I was like, how would our game go? Did we win? And they're like, you didn't play. There was no game. And I was like, what do you mean? I know, like, obviously I didn't play. I'm in a hospital right now. I must have got injured or something. Like, how do we do? Did we win? Did we win? And they're like, no, like, there was no game. I was like, oh, did the refs not show up? Like, I was just thinking of every single thing possible that could go through my head. And I was like, so the refs didn't show up? Or, like, why am I here? But, like, why was there no game? They're like, there was no game. There's a bus crash and your teammates died and some of your staff on a team died as well. And I was like, no, this isn't real. They're like, no, it's real. Immediately after he woke up, Caleb made his parents send emails to the coaches at York. And I was like, you need to send them an email telling them that I was in an accident and that I will respond to them when I'm better. And they're like, Caleb, they know about it. And I was like, no, you've got to tell them. And my parents were like, okay, no, like, it's fine. Like, they understand. I was like, no, like, you're telling them because I want them to know that I am okay and I want to be playing hockey next year. But it wouldn't be that easy. Caleb was pretty beaten up. I had a fractured skull, a third-degree brain injury when there's only, like, four degrees. So it goes concussion, first, second, third, fourth degree. And then I also had two broken vertebrae in my neck, three others that were compressed, and four broken vertebrae in my back. I asked my dad, Deepak Chopra, who spent his life studying human wellness, what he thought the value of telling Humboldt's story could be, and what it really means to heal. We've actually debated whether or not we should even do this story, because it's depressing. As a filmmaker, it does sound depressing, but there's also something about the dignity of telling that story and being respectful to a community and sharing, because I think part of the healing process is community. There's nothing you can say to anyone to alleviate their grief. So the only advice you can give to people who are grieving is that they should fully embrace their grieving and feel the grief in their body. That's essentially what the team chaplain, Sean Brando, did for everyone when he gave a moving speech at a memorial vigil in the days immediately following the crash. 
in tragedy, it's you're not really left with too many. It just sort of strips away all the platitudes. You don't have the opportunity to be apathetic towards towards God, and, and so you you will either come face to face with God, and you will accept that, or you will outrightly want to reject it. And and so you're not left with an option to, you know, <laughs> to just apathetically, who cares? Yeah, you're faced with the the big questions of of life and purpose and and meaning, you know, where was God? The sort of grief being felt by people most closely connected to the crash can also have profound effects on the body. As soon as people experience grief or even a memory of the tragedy, their body has a biological, physiological response to that feeling. If you suppress that feeling, it gets aggravated. You know, the saying is, what you resist persists. So the cure of pain, as the great Sufi poet Rumi said, is in the pain. The cure for pain is in the pain. To stop hurting, let yourself hurt. Key thing is, feel it and go through it. Uh, There's no other way. And uh, ultimately, the energy of grief dissipates. Even the worst tragedies, people, if they don't suppress, it dissipates. And then they turn that into something bigger and much more important. That adversity ultimately makes them stronger. So why then do we feel so drawn to the tidy, happy ending? First of all, I think this idea of a happy ending is pretty much a modern, postmodern phenomenon. In classic theater, there was tragedy and there was comedy, and they complemented each other. Shakespeare, for example, is an expert in tragedies, and people go and watch a tragedy because they feel in the pain of the other, they feel something themselves, they relate to it. Empathy is the first stage of connecting with somebody. So the way you usually define empathy is you feel what another feels. Now, interestingly enough, when you feel what another feels, even if it's painful, it actually connects to you to that other person in a very strong emotional way that can create a long-lasting bond. In other words... Happy endings feel good, but they're not always honest. Repressing the grief can cause more pain. Like Rumi the poet said, the cure for pain is in the pain. I I really don't want to be here. I've never felt so empty in my life. I needed to be reminded of Jesus. I needed to hear from God in this darkness. I didn't have anything to give because I wasn't full of hope myself. Our life is just a vapor. What will you do with one breath? Each breath that you have left, what are you going to do with it? Will you seek the God who has walked and who has died to show his love and his concern and his his care for you? Or will you get bitter and angry and frustrated? You know, there's really, really no commodity on earth today that is as valuable as time. The time that we've had, the times that we have now, and the time that we have left. 
There's a lot of, uh, still a lot of days for me that I think, I, I wish I could go back. I wish I could rewind or replay or change things, and I, we, I can't do that. But on the other hand, uh, the past also has stories, rich stories, good stories, reminders. It's not an exaggeration when we say that junior hockey in Canada is like a religion. Yeah, I mean, it, it's part of Canada. That's ESPN hockey commentator John Butchagross. It's a country of 36 million. It's a gigantic country, but there's only 36 million people. There's, a, there's an intimacy to that. Mm-hmm. And that part of Canada, like you said, it's like being in the middle of Indiana or Nebraska. You drive forever in a straight line. Yeah, middle of Canada, a lot like middle of America. You know, obviously Toronto's the big cosmopolitan sure. city, Vancouver, but in the middle you're, are these, some of these forgotten people. They're hardworking, blue-collar people. This, is a, this town's a lot like when you saw the movie Hoosiers. The gymnasium or the rink is the place you go in the, in the cold winters to get warm and be around people. Otherwise, you're just stuck in your house all by yourself. So you go to the rink to be around other people. Former NHL player Jared Stahl remembers playing for elite junior hockey teams in small towns like Humboldt. These communities don't have a lot of money, and they it's pretty much there's not many things to do in a community, especially in December, January, February, and it's the dark, cold months. Um, they take a lot of pride in going to their, their local hockey team's game, and that's just what they care about, a school, church, family, and, and the local hockey team the kids like they love it that's Braden Camrud Humboldt's 20 year old first line forward they love seeing like the the bigger kids in action you know the body checking the, the fast pace the hard shooting and stuff like that they, they love it so going out to the schools and wearing our jerseys they know exactly who we are and it almost reminds me and I don't know if you, again like some places in the states that have, with high school football like oh. Texas, like Texas high school football where yeah. like you have these small towns and then like the team is like the yeah the thing like, to do yeah it's like you go to the games and like you kind of support your local big team and they're usually it doesn't even really matter if they're good they're kind of just like the pinnacle of kind of what your community is kind of about it's not a glamorous life players live with billets or host families who provide food shelter and other basic needs and the players don't really get paid we got paid basically gas money and some food money, and that was it. You sign contracts, junior league contracts, and yeah, you, you can still get traded. It's ac- actually like, it's a pretty professional league by the sounds of it, right? It has everything but the word professional, and you're not making a lot of money. You know, your billet families get paid $300 a month and, and to take care of you, basically. And that's just the way it is. But in many ways, junior hockey is a lot like professional NHL level hockey. 72 games in the junior uh, year, so the NHL is 82. And that's why NCAA college, they only play, I think it's around 40-ish, something like that. It's also professional in the sense that it pushes young boys to grow up quickly. When I was 16, I started junior hockey. When you went to the your junior league team, how far away was it from your home? Uh, it was about an 11-hour drive. 11 hours? Yeah. Oh, wow. So it was yeah. so it was leaving your family and... I think maybe for I could see the tears in my mom's eyes when they dropped me off. But, you know, I any team you're on, you have 25 best friends and, and brothers, and, and you're just so used to that. That's the part that makes it special. 
They might be far from home, but they make a new kind of family. Often, that means as much as the hockey itself. Not only to the players, but also to their billet families. I call my billet mom my mom. I've had two billet moms, they're both my moms. So I have three moms, and uh, yeah, it's just it's crazy. I have brothers and sisters from the billet family, I have fathers, like, they're, they become your family. And this humble team had a unique sense of brotherhood. Chris Joseph remembers his son Jackson being concerned when he was traded to Humboldt during the season. You really never know how you're going to fit in with a new team. His concern didn't last long. He really fell in love with the team. Jackson had said to me later on, he goes, Dad, this team is so good. There's no clicks. Everybody gets along. So I said, well, Jackson, go embrace that because that's rare. I said, in my whole career, I've only been on two or three or four teams like that that have been special. But all of that, I think, was a testament to Darcy bringing in quality people, and they just gelled. The humble team truly loved their coach, Darcy Hogan. That was the first thing Caleb noticed when he, too, was traded to Humboldt in the middle of the season. Darcy was unbelievable. He, When I first came in, he just set the tone. He was like, here, like we're, we're here to win a championship. And I think that was the biggest thing is he believed day one. And we all needed to believe day one as well. So I hopped on board. All our leaders hopped on board and were like, yeah, we're with you, Darcy. We're going to do this. One of the biggest things for him is kind of like, before he even acquires a player for a team, he was kind of like, okay, how are they as a person? Like, I want to know how they are as a human beings. So, like, he would reach out to Billets and be like, how are they at home? You know, and then he'd reach out to other coaches and be like, how is he in the dressing room? Like, they could have been an all-star player, but if they were a bad person, like, he wouldn't want them on their team. And above all, Darcy treated his players with the same respect he demanded that they show to him and each other. I think every coach I've had comes in the dressing room and rips you apart at some point during the season and then takes it back the next day and is like, I'm sorry, like, I was mad. Darcy never came in the dressing room and ripped us apart once. And that was one of the biggest things I respected in him was that he respected us and we all had to respect him. Darcy was one of the souls lost in the crash. But the effect he had on the boys was profound. And the way they treated each other largely as a result of the way he treated them, was equally profound. Like, hockey was important to us when we were at the rink, and that was 100% our jobs, but it was about being great friends, too. Like, it was about being great people to one another. I played 19 years professional hockey, and I I know what a a good team looks like, and that was a good team. Whether they were going to win championship or, or not is irrelevant. What they had was a special moment where they all got along and they gelled and they would have been lifelong friends. Beyond hockey, the boys just had fun together. Take Bachelor Mondays, for instance. We all picked like the girl who we thought that the guy would end up being with in the end and then we'd all like, throw in five bucks and then we'd all go over and you know have a glass of wine and the boys would watch The Bachelor together. I think the most we had at one episode was 17. And the least was like 13. So like there was a huge outing. And it was at uh, my billet's house. And we hosted it every Monday. And it was a good time. Like It was a good together. They had fun doing just about anything together. I do remember, you know, Jackson, he would talk about Bachelor Night. 
he would talk about playing Fortnite online with the boys. He would include his little brother here in Edmonton and, you know, his little brother would play Fortnite with the boys online. Sometimes, um, they would go, you know, they shoveled snow together. They were having, they always had get togethers. Their girlfriends all got the boys together and they would have parties with the girlfriends. And it was just a, a really nice group. Some of the most fun they had was on those long bus rides. As soon as you get on the bus at the very start, you're kind of joking around, you're telling jokes, you're, you're on your phone, you're, you're chatting about whatever, you know, you're having conversations. And then, you know, maybe in the last half an hour, right before you're about to get to the rink, guys are, you know, dialing it in, they're putting their headphones on, they're listening to music. But I had like a little routine with my captain and we stole it from the St. Louis Blues, but we kind of, you know, we did a little spin and we kind of like bumped shoulders and whatever. And then we kind of just tell each other how much we needed each other. I don't know if people ever go on road trip with their best friends, but that's what it's like. We always had a good time on the bus. I asked Nick Shlomansky, who's sitting in front of me, where he lives, and I knew he lived on the highway. And he's like, oh, yeah, like I'll tell you when. So I sat down, and Nick turned around. I was like, oh, yeah, I live right here. And he pointed, I went and looked. And I was like, oh, a nice house. And then Parker Tobin like chimed in and was like, nobody cares. And everybody starts laughing. And I was like, well, I do. And everybody's laughing even more. And it was just a really good atmosphere, and I was like, okay, I need to focus up now. I put in my headphones, and I was looking down, and I guess that's when it happened. Approaching an intersection, the bus was going some 60 miles an hour down the two-lane country highway when a semi-truck blew through its stop sign and collided with the bus. The impact was like a bomb being set off. I kind of just woke up, and I was like, days like I couldn't really get any sort of like balance or uh, cognitiveness back like I was like really dizzy and my ears were ringing and I couldn't really hear anything and like I was kind of just like what's going on like I was like on my side and I rolled up and I looked over I saw one of my teammates and I could tell like he wasn't there anymore like I just I, I can like it just looked like he's sleeping but I just from the way that he was sitting like I just knew that he wasn't and I looked over at one of my other teammates, and he was, like, full-on screaming, like, full-on, like, just in pain. And, and I was like, hey, buddy, like, we're going to be okay. Like, we're fine. Help's coming. Don't worry about it. We're okay. Like, and I was just doing everything I could to calm him down. There's glass everywhere. There's blood all over me. Like, I I didn't know what to think. And I, was, I told myself right away, like, my my conscience, like, hey, like, you have to realize, like, what's happening. Like, this happened you can now, like, what do you do next? The reality of just how bad the situation was didn't quite hit Braden until hours later at the hospital. Like, I couldn't really feel anything, so I, I couldn't tell if it was a dream or not. And I kind of looked at my dad, and I was like, okay, like, who's here? He's like, what? And I was like, like, who made it? Like, who is, who is still here? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, I kind of like lost him. I was like, tell me right now. I was like, who's here? And I started like naming guys. Like I started listing names. He's like, buddy, like just like, it's okay. Like to focus on you right now. And I was like so mad and he couldn't tell me. And so I was, I got like upset about that. And I started like, I started bawling. Like I started like sobbing loud. That anyone survived is a miracle. Some like Braden survived with injuries that were relatively minor. Cuts, bruises broken bones. But others were in far worse shape, like his teammate, Caleb Dahlgren. I had a fractured skull. 
uh, third degree brain injury, and then I also had two broken vertebrae in my neck, three others that were compressed, and four broken vertebrae in my back. To this day, Caleb's brain injury has left him with no memory of the accident or the four days that followed. I know the guys said that they heard like the bus driver scream and that when they hit, like a lot of guys flew forward. And so I don't remember anything other than having my head down and looking at my phone, changing the song. That Caleb has as much of his memory intact as he does is a miracle. I'm in the 3-5% that can remember everything before the accident. And so I can remember my parents, my name, how to walk, talk. But a lot of people, like the 95%, don't. And so I'm very lucky to even be able to walk, talk, and remember my name. My uh, doctor actually called my parents while I was in the hospital. And he was calling them just bawling. My dad's like, why are you crying? He's like, I saw Caleb's scan. And I'm so sorry, life won't ever be the same. Like, I know he's not talking. I know he doesn't remember you guys. My dad's like, no, he does. Like, he's talking with his friends right now. And he's like, okay, I'm coming to see him. So he left work early and came and saw me. And when he walked in, I was like, hi, Dr. Likos. And I guess he just fell to the ground bawling. Said to my dad, he's like, I've, I've never seen this. His scans said that he shouldn't you know how to walk, talk, or remember you guys. And so this is unbelievable, and he's a miracle. Doctors say that one day, his memory of the accident might return. But for now, Caleb's okay with how things are. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. I think it is. I'm glad in a way I don't remember it. He'd rather focus on moving forward, on getting back on the ice again. But for him, same as for teammates like Braden who survived and fathers like Chris Joseph who lost their sons, getting back on the ice is far easier said than done. This past September, after the Humboldt Broncos' first game since the accident, there was a ceremony on the ice. Sixteen banners laid out in a circle, one for each person who died. Surviving players, family members on hand, and I made a big mistake and, and watched this before, and it's, uh, it's difficult because it just kept going and going. And you think about the toll of the loss, and it's uh, immeasurable. And these people on these banners were their friends, were their family, and they're gone. Braden Camrude was one of only two returning Humboldt players. Physically, he was fine. Having survived the crash with a concussion and some cuts and bruises, but emotionally, he had to will himself back onto the ice by holding close the memories of those who were gone. I want to be able to carry those guys with me, and they're kind of like my motivation, so I'll go obviously as far as I can. Then there was Caleb Dahlgren, the boy with brain damage and a broken back, the living miracle. Caleb still has a ways to go before he can play hockey again. My goal is to let my brain heal. And then once it's fully healed, then I'll make a goal of playing. I'm not taking any contact, and I don't want any setbacks as well. So I'm not going to put myself in situations where I might get a setback. And that means if I have to go to bed early on a Saturday night when the guys are going out, then that's what I have to do. Or if I can't go on a road trip because I have two finals and my brain needs rest, then I'll have to do that as well. I am fully on board with getting my brain fully healed first and then playing second. 
But make no mistake, Caleb intends to get back out on the ice. Full speed. Full contact. He doesn't know when it'll be, but he's not taking anything for granted. I should be in a vegetative state, but now I'm here. And so I'm living my life to the fullest for those people. And with the injury, like, some days you feel good and other days you feel all right. Chris Joseph, the former NHL player who lost his son Jackson in the accident, truly didn't know how he'd return to the ice to coach his camps and youth teams again. So one day over the summer, he simply forced himself back out there. I was really nervous getting back on the ice. And, uh, you know, once I got on the ice, I found that I kind of got into the swing of things. And I had some kids that would skate up to me and they'd say, no, Coach Chris, I'm sorry about your son. And I'd give them a quick hug right in the middle of the ice and they'd skate away and get back into their drill. And I thought that was just so, so cute of the little guys and so endearing that, you know, it was it was helpful. And I've been running hockey camps the last couple of days here in St. Albert too. And my, my voice is hoarse and my feet are sore but I really do enjoy it. So in a lot of ways, uh, getting back on the ice for me and coaching has been therapy. Some days I feel like, you know, having these little guys and girls out there doing drills and making me smile, I think that they might be helping me more than I'm helping them. Grief is messy. But the cure for pain is in the pain. Humboldt Broncos chaplain Sean Brando said as much in his own way when he closed out his speech at the first vigil in the days immediately after the accident. As Jesus appeared to his disciples after he rose again, many of them wondered if it was Jesus. And uh, I've heard so many times, I wonder if this community will ever be the same. You know how Jesus showed that he was who he said he was? His scars. A scar is something that is healed but still there. This isn't going to go away. It's not going to be as raw. Can we heal? Yes. Will the scar be there? Yes. It can be a long road between the wound and the scar. For Humboldt and everyone grappling with life after the crash, it will be. Meanwhile, to pass the time, they'll play. Why Sports Matter is a Religion of Sports and Cadence 13 production. Adam Schlossman is our producer. Brandon Sneed, our writer. Music is from Michael Kramer. Chris Basil and Rich Berner, our editors. And Kevin Richter, our engineer. Amit Sankaran is the executive producer. Luciano Del Villar and Joe Levin are associate producers. Special thanks to Chris Corcoran, Rich Cook, Matt Havia, Sean Cherry, Giselle Peretz, Eric LeDrew, Carrie Nelson, and Parker Reese. Credit to 100 Huntley Street, ESPN, and NBC Nightly News for the use of some of the clips you heard on this episode. Subscribe to Why Sports Matter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode and know some friends that may enjoy it as well, please share it with them. 
And of course, we'd be very grateful for a positive review and rating if you got the time. <laughs>